in the midst of uncertainty, our faith can struggle. Our walk becomes labored, our heart heavy. There's something about the unknown which seems to weaken us. It drains our patience and blurs our focus. Yet, in the middle of everything, stands a faithful God. A God who's not swayed by the struggle, who isn't moved by the winds of chaos. A God who remains faithful, even when our faith is fragile. It seems more difficult than ever to not worry about tomorrow. Yet that's exactly what God has asked us to do. For when we cast our burdens on Him, the troubles of the moment begin to fade. When we trust the plans He has for us, our fear begins to subside. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our focus becomes consumed by clarity. Yes, we are in the midst of uncertainty, but we can be certain of one thing. God is faithful. And that is more than enough for tomorrow. Just earlier, I think somebody was playing tricks on me. I think I'm taller than I am, but I'm really not that tall. So we're going to wind that down. So, Proverbs 1.7. Anybody know what it says? Anybody have any ideas? Anybody remember? It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So today we continue our study in 2 Peter. It's, it, one of the things that stands out to me more than any other is that these false teachers do not fear God. Uh, they run from Him and seek their own pleasure. A few, a few years ago, I did a small study on the fear of God, and I came across this definition by, Rogers, by Roger Ellsworth in his book, Opening Up Psalms. And it says this, To fear God means to live in reverential awe of who He is and dread His displeasure. And then he quotes Charles Spurgeon, who says, Fearing God means pay to Him humble, childlike reverence, walk in His laws, have respect to his will, tremble to offend him, hasten to serve him. And so, if you would turn into 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, we're going to read verses 10 and 22 as we think about this definition of fear this morning. So, if you would follow along with me as I read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 22. Uh, it says, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Not even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. 
But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed, an accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever they are mastered by. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true, a dog returns to its vomit and a sow is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud." So here's the question that I asked as I studied this this week, is, is how do I know what a false prophet is? How, how do you know what a false prophet looks like? How, how are the young Christians, how are those that we are discipling to know what a pro false prophet or a false teacher looks like? Uh, Peter does a really good job of answering this question. Uh, you know, he's, we started last week and we, and we talked how these false teachers uh, are, are teaching things that are abominable. We talked about Sodom and Gomorrah um, and, and the sin that went on there. And this week, Peter really hammers home what these guys look like and what their teaching is. He holds nothing back in pointing out what they look like. Um, after reading this passage and studying it and breaking it apart, number one... <laughs> There's lots of men that come to mind from the past 30, 35 years. Um, some because I, I was alive through some of them and remember some because we've watched documentaries on them. Um, but they fit the bill of this passage. But one truth became very evident to me, and that is this. And I've already kind of spoken this, but, but number one in your notes is they have no fear of God in them. That's who these false teachers are. They, they do not fear God. Uh, if you look in verse 10, they follow the corrupt desire of the flesh. Basically, anything goes. Uh, this can be sexual in nature, but not necessarily. Uh, as I was doing my study, the, the commentators talked about how this... Anything that they want to do, they will do. Uh, it doesn't matter if, if it's against God's word or not. They're going to do it because it's what their desire is to do. And that's because in also in verse 10 it says they despise authority. Now authority here, it means nothing to them. Um, this authority is any type of authority. It's the authority as humans. 
angels, God, or even God's word. Um, if we look back to our passage, it says they despise authority. They, they totally throw it out. They want nothing to do with it. They become bold and arrogant in verse 11. They're daring and self-willed. They're overbearing is what it means from, from those words. That's the actual translation of those. Daring and self-willed. They're not afraid to blaspheme celestial beings. They're not even afraid of angels. They're, they're, they're not afraid to say things against the beings of heaven that God has created. They're not even afraid to say things against God himself. And it's not a one-time deal. It's over and over. It's a constant thing. Nothing new with them. They despise the authority of celestial beings. Verse 11 tells us that not even the angels themselves are bold enough to blast celestial beings. But these, these false teachers have no problem doing this. They blaspheme in matters they do not understand. In verse 12, that's the third mark under your notes this morning. They blaspheme in matters they do not understand. Or in the New American Standard, it says, they revile where they have no knowledge. In other words, they, they speak of things that they know nothing about, but they blaspheme against them. The, the term blaspheme here literally means the word blaspheme, but could mean insult, slander, or curse. These teachers do not even have respect for what they don't know. They tear apart what they don't know. They, they spew whatever their propaganda is about it. And they slander. They utter false charges or misrepresentations which defame and damage another's reputation because they don't know what they're talking about. And they blaspheme. They insult, they curse what they don't know. Verse 13 says, what they do, they do in broad daylight, right in front of those they are teaching. Uh, it, it says that they do this at, at the, at the, as they're eating a meal. Now, this meal was thought to be, it could be the, the Lord's Supper, but also in, in this time, in this culture, in the early church, they did, had love suppers or love meals where uh, those that were poor could come and, and those that had more money would put on a meal or a feast for those that were poor. And it's thought that, that these men exploited that and made a big to-do about they were the ones that provided the meal. Um, interesting that it says what they do, they do in broad daylight, right in front of those they are teaching. It talks about reveling here. Uh, they carouse in broad daylight. <laughs> the word here actually has a definition that says a life lived in luxury and splendor. So what these people do, they are bold about it. They're arrogant about it. They don't care if you know the lifestyle that they are living. They don't care that you know that they're getting rich off of you or that they're exploiting you or those that they teach because they are okay living a life lived in luxury and splendor. They don't care what anybody else thinks. As long as they are happy, that is all that matters. I really think that's why they don't fear God. 
They do these things because they have no fear of God in them. And, and like I said, I, I can think of, of many names come to my mind. Um, old names, new names of men that potentially fit this bill. That potentially fit these definitions. Basically, it comes down to as long as they are happy, that is all that matters. In verse 14, it says, they have eyes for your women. They are adulterers. They have eyes of adultery. They are looking at, at, at others. Uh, uh, some of the commentaries I read said, said that because Peter brings in Sodom and Gomorrah in the first part of this, that it could even be men and boys, that, that they don't stop at women. But if you think about all the teachers just in the past 30 years, they have all had their eyes on other wives and even young girls as low as the age of 12. They live by their feelings rather than their, by their conscience. This is no different than our culture now. We see this in our culture in this day and age. Well, as long as you feel good about yourself, it's okay to do that. And this is what's being taught. This is what's being taught from pulpits on a, on a, on a given church day, whatever their church day might look like. Um, they're told that if they give so much that they will be blessed. But the blessing never comes because these men live in lies and live for themselves. They continue to sin. Uh, they can't stop. They habitually sin. They seduce the unstable soul. It's interesting in, in, the, new, in the NIV it just says they seduce the unstable so as I was looking up uh, these definitions and, and, and looking at some of the, the Greek definitions, it brought up two Greek words, and I was like, well, that's kind of confusing, so I looked in a different translation. The New American Standard says, they seduce the unstable soul. Uh, interesting here that the word for soul is psyche in the Greek. What does that bring up? Mental state. But it means much more than just mental it means inner self. It means the heart. Uh, one of the things we talk about with the kids is, is, what, is it, what does it mean when the Bible talks about our heart? Well, it's talking about that place inside of you where your soul is at, where your emotions well up from. And if you stop and think about when it talks about our heart and the center of our emotions, which is what the heart is or the psyche is, think about where your emotions really come from. They start somewhere deep inside your belly and they work their way up until they hit your brain. Think about that. Where does your anger really stem from? Does it start here or does it start down here? When you're anxious, where does the anxiety start at? You get that sickness in the pit of your stomach, right? This is what he's talking about. It's this psyche. This is the unstable soul. So, so these people tend to be unstable in their inner man, in their heart. Um, you know, we're going to talk about this more in, verse, in verses 18 and 20. Uh, this might be a young Christian, someone who has just accepted Christ as their Savior and is not grounded in the Word of God. It could also be someone that is not saved, but they are searching, they have been at church, they're trying to understand the Scriptures, and someone comes along and teaches them something different than what they're hearing or along the same lines but tweaks it just enough that it sounds good. It appeals to the flesh. See, that's what these men do. 
They take those that are unstable in their thought process, in their mind, in their heart, in their salvation journey, and they tweak the salvation message just enough. Don't, don't think that these men don't know what they're doing. They willingly teach false doctrine on purpose to lead those astray. And we're going to learn in a little bit, these men are not saved believers. They want nothing to do with God. Only what he says because of what they can earn from it and gain from it. Mostly what their flesh desires. It says in verse 14, they are experts in greed. The poor, the downtrodden, the marginalized, all those that are looking for a greater purpose, these are the people they prey upon. Stop and think down through the ages of all of the different cults that have come up in the last 30 years. Who are the people that have gone to those? The people that were searching, asking questions. They might be people that we sat in Bible study with, but they started listening to this person. And they had just enough of an appeal to go to the flesh. Because here's the deal. Jesus' appeal to our flesh, God's appeal to our flesh, is to be rid of it. Jesus died on the cross to take the power of sin away from us that we might have a true freedom, a freedom that these guys claim that they have, but they don't. They try to find the most vulnerable people they can and twist them in their thinking. Verses 15 and 16, they, they have left the straight way and followed Balaam. Uh, if you don't know the story of Balaam, Balaam was a, a Gentile prophet in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, Numbers 22 through 25. Um, and there was a king that saw the Israelites coming. He's like, oh, man, we got to do something about that. So he, he went to ask Balaam uh, to throw a curse on him. Balaam was going to do it. God stopped him. Uh, but then the guys brought a bunch of money, and so he was going to do it for the money. That's who these guys are. Uh, eventually, God had to intervene. Uh, through the donkey of Balaam. Balaam, I think, would have beat his donkey to death because the donkey sat down in the, in the road. At one point, he was going to turn around and go home. Um, but Balaam kept beating him and beating him and beating him because he wouldn't do what he wanted him to do. Sounds kind of like a horse or a cow. Um, animals don't always do what we want them to do. Only when the donkey finally sat down and Balaam was beating on him, he says, why are you hitting me? If I go forward... There's death because there was an angel standing in the path blocking the way. You see, Balaam went astray and these men, and I, and I think we could even include in some denominations and some churches women as well, are false teachers. Um, money is more important to them than what God says. It, it took a donkey to stop Balaam from doing wrong. I don't know what it would take to stop these false teachers from doing wrong other than God's punishment upon them. Clearly, to me, these teachers do not fear God. They do not fear authority. In fact, like I said in verse 10, it says they despise authority. Um, they have no fear of God in them. And then with that, in verses 12 to 22, another truth arises out of this. Because they don't have the fear of God, it's very evident that they don't know God. They have, no, they have a working knowledge of God, but the intimate knowledge they don't have. 
They don't really understand who God is. They don't want to know who God is. All they want to know and understand is what, how they can use the gospel and pervert it for their own good and their own desire and their own flesh. And here's why I say they don't know God. Because in verse 17, it says they are dried up springs. They are misdriven by a storm. Is a spring a spring if it's dry? Honestly, it's really just a dry bed of dirt where the spring used to be, correct? So it's not really a spring. For it to be a true, a true spring, it would be bubbling up water. And it's usually pretty pure, good tasting water. It's usually ice cold, not contaminated by uh, giardia or the other waterborne pathogens that can be in it. You can typically drink right out of that spring. <laughs> you don't want to drink out of these guys. They're dried up. They got nothing to give you that's good. There's no life in them. Um, they offer no hope. They offer no hope. They say they do. They boast that they do, but they really have no hope. They are misdriven by a storm. Uh, this, the, the word mist literally means fog or cloud. Now, when we see clouds coming, we often think, oh, great. We get that deep blue, dark clouds, right? We think a rainstorm is coming. But sometimes all we get is dry lightning storms. And it's usually in a drought. We're needing the rain. The farmers need it. The water hasn't been turned on yet. There are not a lot of their, their water rights quite yet. And so early in June, we need the water. That's what we're talking about. This is a cloud that comes up. And when I think of fog, I, I, I think there's not really water in fog. It kind of puts some moisture on your windshield in the morning, but there's really no water in it. It, it promises water but it really just falls short. And really, what's the purpose of fog, right? I mean, really, what's the purpose of fog? Does anybody have the answer to that? What's the, what's the purpose? Pretty much, that's what it does, right? It clouds your vision. So those, it, it fogs you up. It's usually dense. Uh, it, it makes driving and seeing hard to almost impossible. Sometimes we're lucky to see the, the hood of our vehicle in front of us when we're driving down the road in fog, right? Um, if you're not careful and, and, and you're, you're running a boat or a ship in the fog, you can run it aground because you can't see what's sticking out in front of you because the fog is so dense and thick. You can hit another car on the highway or a cow or another animal because you can't see them. You see, these teachers are like this. There's no purpose to them other than to destroy your life at the gain of what they might get from you. They are a fog. They are a dried up spring. They are without God. They don't know Him. They speak empty and boastful words in verse 18. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, in his book on 2 Peter, says the literal translation is inflated words that say nothing. They puff their words up to sound good. They make what they're saying sound incredible, like the most tasty morsel that you can think of. 
In fact, right now I'm thinking of, of the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Edmund comes across the White Witch and all he can think about is Turkish delight. I've never had it, don't even know what it is other than it looks pretty good. Um, and all he can think about is that Turkish delight. And she promises him Turkish delight if she or if he will turn over his family because they are the sons of Adam and they are to be put to death by her order so that they cannot rule Narnia um, so that she can continue her rule. Because as soon as the son of Adam's come, that means that Aslan is coming back. She wants to rule in her, in her uh, terror, in her fear, and in her evil. She made everything look so good, but when he actually comes back with his family and turns them over, they actually turn him to stone. Because he didn't bring his family all the way to her. That's how twisted these teachers are. They make things sound and look so good and so wonderful. Uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, verses 33 through 37. Jesus speaks a little. Actually, Jesus spoke a lot about this kind of false teachers, quite honestly. Uh, honestly, that the Pharisees that Jesus dealt with uh, somewhat flooded my mind when I'm thinking about some of what these false teachers are teaching and doing. I don't think that they went quite to the depth of what Peter is describing, but, but I, I think he definitely describes some of who the Pharisees were. Um, but let, let's look at what words do and what they say about us. So Matthew 12, 33 through 37. Jesus is, is talking to his disciples, um, talking about what makes us clean or unclean. Um, and he says this, in verse 33, make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? Talking to the Pharisees for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of that again would be that psyche that that inner being that inner man. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Now, there's application for us here. Not because we're false teachers, but simply because what is coming out of our mouth. <laughs> it will show us where our heart really lies. But Jesus was talking to the Pharisees um, because in verse 24, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons, talking of Jesus and the work that he was doing. And so he goes on this speech about what comes out of your mouth, shows what's in your heart. This is the false teacher's. And with this, they entice people by the lust of the flesh. They say, hey, if you come, this is what you're going to have. Um, Pastor David talked about uh, uh, the, the, the Mormon church last week. 
Um, the fundamental part of that church still exists in multiple states. And this is one of the pulling points for men, is lust of the flesh. Um, Galatians 6, 19 through 21 says this. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, that fits exactly who these men are, who these teachers are. They don't know God. They do not fear God, and because they don't fear God, they don't know God, or the other way around. Because of this, they speak empty, boastful words. They entice people by the lust of the flesh. And these teachers entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Um, I want to read from Warren uh, a few paragraphs, because he, what he has to say about these teachers and the people that they are enticing, I think is, is very good and profitable for us to think about. Um, he says, for example, pride is one of the sins of the flesh and apostate teachers like to appeal to the human ego. A true servant of God will lovingly tell people that they are lost sinners under the wrath of a holy God. But the apostate minister will try to avoid putting people on a guilt trip. He will tell his listeners how good they are, how much God loves them and needs them, and how easy it is to get into the family of God. In fact, he may tell them they are already in God's family and just need to start living like it. The apostate avoids talking about repentance because egotistical men do not want to repent. The third reason they are successful is that they appeal to immature people, people who have very recently escaped from their old ways. The apostate has no message for the down-and-out sinner. He does, not, he does have a message for the new believer. A pastor friend of mine was assisting some missionaries in the Philippines by conducting open-air meetings near the university. Students who wanted to decide for, for Christ were asked to step into a building near the square, and there they were counseled and also given follow-up material to help them get started in their Christian life. No sooner did a new convert walk out the door and pass the crowd then a cultist would join him and start to introduce his own religion. All the apostates that had to, do, had to do was look for the people carrying follow-up material. This same procedure is often used in large evangelistic crusades. The false teachers are ready to pounce on new believers carrying decision packets. This is why it is important that soul winners, pastors, and other Christian workers ground new converts in the faith. Like newborn babies, new Christians need to be protected, fed, and established before they can be turned loose in this dangerous world. One reason Peter wrote this letter was to warn the church to care for the new Christians because the false teachers were out to get them. We cannot blame new believers for being unstable if we have not taught them how to stand. Um, in the message... Uh, Verse 18 says this, Men and women who have recently escaped from a deviant life are most susceptible to their brand of seduction. And then verse 20, 
If they've escaped from the slum of sin by experiencing our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ, then slid back into the same old life again, they are worse than if they had never left. I, I don't know that these are believers. Uh, I, 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 I've looked at two or three different commentaries and, and I've looked at a couple and, and one is, is for these are unbelievers and one are for these are new believers. Um, either way, these men know who to look for. They look for those that they can pray upon that they know have heard the gospel. And they make it sound appealing. They make it sound more appealing than by, by working their magic, by saying, you're already there, you're already okay. You don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is the son of God, that he is who he says he is. You don't have to believe in your heart that God raised him from that. As long as you're baptized, you're saved. As long as you give enough money, you will be saved. You know, I couldn't help as I read that first paragraph that I read out of that book as I read that uh, yesterday morning thinking about a commercial that aired during the Super Bowl. And I had a, a mom uh, text me and ask my thoughts on the commercial. Um, and, and I looked into the organization that puts out the He Gets Us commercials. Um, I think we need to be careful. Uh, it's a very diverse group of unbelievers and believers, uh, those that claim to be Christ followers, those that don't, those that are searching. Uh, we need to be careful. Because these teachers are good at being vultures. They prey upon those who are seeking escape from old ways and promising them freedom, freedom that they themselves don't even have. Romans 6, 6 through 18 says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves as someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Paul's whole argument in, in Romans 6 is coming from the standpoint of, of the whole book of Romans. Paul's argument is the law is not for salvation. The law's whole entire purpose is to show us how sinful we are and how much we need a Savior. Jesus Christ came to fulfill that law and it's in him that we have righteousness. It's in him that we have freedom. Because at the first part of chapter 6 and verses 1 through 7, Paul says we are baptized, spiritually baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. And he says if we're baptized into Christ, that means we're baptized into his death, into his burial, and into his resurrection. The picture of which our water baptism stands for. We are here. We are baptized into his death his burial, and his resurrection. 
And because of that, the dead man is free from sin. Just as Christ is free from sin because we're baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection, so we too are free. This is not the freedom these guys teach. Here's a reason I think that these men pick on baby Christians. When we lived in Scott's Bluff, we went to a very uh, good Bible church, Bible teaching church. The pastor was known in the town. So much so that when some Mormon missionaries showed up at our doorstep, one day I was at work and kids were outside playing in the front and they walked down the street and started a conversation with Nellie and, and I don't remember exactly how all the conversation went, but it came to um, that we went to church and they asked where and she said we went to Monument Bible Church and they looked at her and said, oh, that's uh, Jake Roberts Church, right? She said, yeah, have a nice day. You want to know why they did that? Because they knew the type of teaching that Jake Roberts taught. Because he had talked with those missionaries and given them solid evidence for why they were wrong and what the true gospel was. She was relieved because she didn't know what to say to them, as I think most are. Uh, had she been not educated by the pastor that we had, I, they would have stood and had conversation with her. Just as all of these that go around do. I mean, we, we had, we were in, in Cheyenne on, on Wednesday and we had conversation with, with a couple of lady Mormon missionaries. Um, wanted to share Jesus with me through the Book of Mormon in the Bible. I'm like, well, I know Jesus. And... Honestly, at the time, I didn't have time to sit and have conversation because we're in the middle of the, of the Maverick parking lot, of all places. Um, one thing I want to be clear. I don't believe this passage is teaching that if these are new believers, that they've lost their salvation. But it's very clear that the path they are headed down is not a good one if they, if they know Jesus, if they understand Jesus. And they turn and, and, and slide backwards. Um, it's worse for them than if they had never known about it. Whoever these are, as a dog returns to its vomit, so, folly repeat, so fools repeat their folly, Proverbs 26, 11. These teachers do not fear God, nor do they know God. Um, their punishment, they're like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They are an accursed brood. That's very strong language. Paul had the same language in Galatians for those false teachers that were uh, teaching false doctrine as well. They are spots and blemishes to the name of Christ. And these false teachers, they're not saved. The blackest dark is reserved for them. They are going to go to the darkest of dark in hell. And it goes clear back to verse 9. They will also be held for punishment on the day of judgment. So quickly I want to go through how does this apply to you and to me. We know what the false teachers look like. What do we take from this and how do we go from here? Well, number one, you need to know the word of God. Everything we've talked about goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Um, I'm going to take us to Genesis 2 real quick here. Um, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Uh, 
it says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's the command God gave. Now, I want you to hear what Eve says when the, the serpent tempts her. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did, you, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpents, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, Eve was twisted a little bit of what God said. The serpent, the devil through the serpent, placed a seed of doubt. And with that, she said, oh, and we're not supposed to touch it either. And then he says, well, God knows that if you eat of that, it's, 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 it's going to be a good thing, but he just doesn't want you to have the knowledge that he has, which was true. He didn't. See, you need to know the Word of God well enough that when the devil uses the Word of God and what God has said in his Word and these false teachers come at you, you can turn around and say, that is not what the Bible says. That is not what God told us. Yes, he did say we should not eat of it. But Eve... Eve added to what God said. And we're not supposed to touch it. That's not what at all what God said. Number two, disciple your children. Um, this is our job. This is our job as parents. It's your job as grandparents to continue to help in the discipleship of your children. It's not the school's job. If they go to a Christian school, it's not the church's job. It's not the youth pastor's job. Our job is to reinforce what you are teaching your job is to disciple your kids. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. I think that explains itself. Make sure that their roots are deep and in fertile soil. When you lead someone to Christ, that is the first step to making a disciple, is leading them to Christ. It is your duty as a Christian to continue the Great Commission and to continue making them a disciple. Make sure the roots are deep. Make sure your roots are deep. Most importantly, make sure your kids' roots are deep. Number three, know the authority that is running your life. This goes clear back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. That's the authority. And everything written after that is taken at face value with what it says, unless we are given a reason otherwise to think differently. We have too many in our culture today, including pastors, that take what it says in Genesis and says it should be interpreted this way because this is what science says. Instead of saying we should look at science through the scope of Scripture and say now, how do we interpret science because the Bible says creation happened this way. You see, this is how false teaching creeps in. 
And here's the problem with this. When we start saying that this word means this, which I've listened to lots of different Hebrew scholars that say if it's this way here, in all of the rest of the Old Testament, it has to be interpreted this way here in Genesis. Not as a period of time, but as a day. Because if we start interpreting it the way we want to interpret it, rather than the way God wrote it, then our young people start to doubt. And you can go to the Answers in Genesis website, uh, Ken Ham. They have done a lot of different uh, research on this. And they have talked to, to college-age students and young adults and asked, why did you leave the church? And their answer is, because we don't believe it's true. And it started back with us leaving Genesis 1 as being written as God wrote it. Number four, Jesus is not dried up, is not a dried up spring. John 13, 4, 13, and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus is the eternal well of living water. He is not a spring that dries up. One of the commentators said that a spring dries up, it's not a spring. But a well is still a well, whether it has water or not. I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. At any rate, Jesus is the well of living water. He does not run out of water. We can drink deep of him ourselves, and we need to. We need to know the authentic teacher well. By know, I mean to have a deep, intimate knowledge of him, not just a false knowledge. It's said that these, that these, these ones that... that, that uh, were, were being led astray that they knew Christ. They didn't have a deep, intimate knowledge of Him. Study Him, seek Him, live like Him. If you really know Him, you will see false teachers from a far distance so you can stay away from them. Number five, uh, be Bereans uh, of Acts 17, 10 through 12. And it says this, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they were... They, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and, and men. Examine the scriptures. Pour through what Pastor David teaches. Pour through whoever the speaker is up here, whether it's me or Pastor Michael or an elder even with what's spoken in, in men's study or women's study, go home and pour over the scriptures yourself and ask God to give you clarity on what's being said. That is our duty as, as fellow believers. Number six, learn to fear God. This is the most important. We need to dread his displeasure. Uh, fear God means to live in reverential awe of who he is and to dread his displeasure. If you remember none of the rest of the definition, remember that first sentence. Fear God means to live in reverential awe of who he is and to dread his displeasure. 1 Timothy 4.16 says this. Uh, worship team, if you guys would come up. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. It's our memory verse for today. Pay close attention to yourself and your doctrine and the things that, that, that you're studying 
And last but not least, we need to put on the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 26 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. See, everything that I've just listed in those seven is counterintuitive, is, is counter against what a false teacher is. So now you know what a false teacher is, but you also know what it looks like to be counter to that and how you should stand and where you should go. I encourage you, go study 2 Timothy 3. Study 1 Timothy. Those books talk more. Paul talks more. Uh, I I just encourage you to study the Word of God. Be diligent to be found approved as men who do not need to be ashamed who rightly handle the word of God. Because then you will know. If you know somebody who is a new believer or somebody that's on the fence, grab a hold of them and start teaching them. Impress upon them the truth of God's word because they need it very, very much. The enemy is around. He is attacking. Father God, um, False teachers are real. Um, In our day and age, I know that that we can list several, um, past and present. God, I pray that we will be on guard, that we will be alert for the devil that's prowling around seeking whom he may devour. God, help us not to come to church for what we get out of it. Help us to come to church for what we can give in, in helping support each other in, in our journeys and our mission as we disciple um, our families. God, may we encourage each other in this. Uh, thank you for your love for us. Pray that you give David and Sarah a safe flight home tomorrow. Uh, again, we pray for Lily, that you would heal her body. Um, I pray for Dennis, that you would heal his, his stomach issues um, and just... I think of Lynn too, Lord, that I just pray that you'd make this medication work that would grow the skin back on her head. Um, I know I've missed others, God. I just pray for healing for this congregation. Um, Physical healing from pneumonia, from all of the stuff going on. Um, And we just pray this in Jesus' name, amen.